You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Hey, good morning, everybody. So glad to be with you and to see you today. I want to mention just briefly, coming up in two weeks, we have what is the first of two offerings for believers' baptisms. So we do these in the summer, and we do it on the last Sunday of July, last Sunday of August. We use a swimming pool at a home of a family in the church, and it's usually a really, really special time. So if you have a new relationship with Jesus Christ, you've invited him to be Lord and Savior in your life, and you haven't been baptized, this is for you. It's a beautiful celebrational experience. If you want to know more, go on the website, HopeChurchRVA slash baptisms, and you'll find information, but you'll want to register for that. And there is an orientation gathering next Sunday afternoon for everybody who's interested. So you can come to the orientation gathering if you just want to learn more, or if you know that you want to be baptized, but we'd love to invite you to that. And hopefully, maybe even these weeks of moving through the summer that we're calling Beholding Jesus, maybe you have felt God call your heart to say yes to Jesus. That'd be wonderful. All right. So we're looking at all these different angles about Jesus Christ. Who is he? What is his impact? One of the things I think that is absolutely essential is knowing this full picture and the backstory of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to try to touch on that a little bit today. We're focusing on Jesus, our rabbi. The word rabbi was often referred to as teacher, but literally it means master. And so to call somebody rabbi would be to say my master, but it was usually associated with someone who was a well-respected religious teacher. Okay, so, Miss Minetti. Man, she was really pretty. I was in first grade. (laughs) And Miss Minetti was my first grade teacher. And she was really pretty. And I thought, you know, maybe this could work. If she waits 20 years, I'll be 26. I have no idea how old she'll be. But maybe this could work. When you're six, you're pretty sure your teacher's life only exists in the classroom because that's the only place you ever see your teacher. And I remember about midway through my first grade year, my mom and I were in a store shopping and Miss Minetti came down the aisle. And I was stunned that this teacher whom I had a six-year-old crush on actually didn't live at school, that she (laughs) had a life outside of school. Well... (laughs) As you know, it didn't turn out for Miss Minetti and me, but (laughs) I remember being pretty smitten by how pretty Miss Minetti was. So the context is a powder keg in the days of Jesus in the New Testament and the Gospels. You got the Jews, you have the Romans, you have constant antagonisms between them. You have Galilee, which is up north, 
which really in that day would have been considered sort of this rogue, lawless land. We can look at a map now and say, oh, it's only 80 miles away, it seems close, but 80 miles in those days was a long way away. And so you have Galilee up north, you have Jerusalem, which is the center, the seat of Israel's religious significance. Jerusalem is like the place. It's the cosmopolitan religious center of Israel. Galilee is like this rogue land of outlaws. And so you begin to put these ingredients, this recipe together, and you can start feeling maybe a little bit of the fabric of what's in play. The Jews and the Romans and this powder keg always waiting to blow. Jerusalem being the center of Israel's religious significance. The Pharisees and the religious teachers feeling that Jerusalem, this is our town. And Galilee, that's like this lawless land of outlaws. And coming into Jerusalem is a guy named Jesus from Galilee. In John chapter 7, we have the setup. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the last day, the culminating day of the feast, Jesus stands up and he says, and I'm summarizing and paraphrasing, I am the living water that you are all hungry for. And boy, talk about stirring the pot. And if you read John chapter 7, you'll read that immediately following that, the debate increases all the more. The temperature goes up, the heat goes up, the debates, the divisions, the consternation about who Jesus is. The Jewish leaders are like, get this guy down. The Roman leaders are like, if this guy creates a Jewish uprising, we got to get rid of this guy. The Jewish leaders are like, Dude, this is our town. You're a Galilean, for goodness sake. And you come into our town and you talk like you own the place. You begin to get a feel for how things are going. So the day of all the debate ends after that last day of the feast when Jesus said that. And the very next morning, the very next morning, this happens. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. You got to remember yesterday. You got to remember what happened yesterday. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, teacher... This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he, he, like he was writing and they keep questioning him. And then he stands up and he talks to them. And when he straightened up, he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he went back to writing on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave 
your life of sin. So here's the backdrop. You got to know the backdrop. Frankly, to be honest with you, the people in those days paid a whole lot more attention to the history and the backdrop of who's who and where they came from than we tend to today. You remember, if you're familiar with the Gospels, the very first of them is Matthew, and it opens with this long genealogy. And it's all about who do you come from? Who are your people? Where do they come from? And what's your background? This is very, very important in those days. An interesting little sidebar is my daughter married a guy who's from California, spent all his life in California. And he's just begun to spend time on the East Coast with us. He made a really interesting observation one day. He said to me, you know what's really interesting to me? I said, what? He said, when I'm on the East Coast, everybody wants to talk about where you've come from. On the West Coast, everybody talks about where you're going. <laughs> okay, that's for another day. <laughs> but there's a huge emphasis on where you come from. Who are your people? Who are your fathers and your father's fathers? The book of Matthew opens with a remarkable biblical version of Ancestry.com. I have a few friends that are very into that kind of stuff. And a couple of years ago, Elizabeth asked one of those friends to do a deep dive as a gift, a birthday gift to me about my family's background. And the person said, I'm just going to warn you, sometimes you have to be prepared that you may find out things that you didn't expect to find out when you get into Ancestry.com. Like what? This person said, listen, I, I have helped people do this and they've learned that their father wasn't their father. <laughs> okay. Well, in my case, as far as we know, my father was my father. <laughs> but in Jesus' case, there's a sordid batch of characters in that genealogy. There's prostitutes. There's people who did not have their act together in the ways that we would think of it. So here's the background, the genealogy. Jesus emerges from all of this. If I could help us understand something, it would be to help us understand that Jesus did not come to start a new religion. Jesus didn't come to start something we call Christianity. Jesus came as the fulfillment of all the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. He is the Jewish Messiah. He comes to save Israel, and that salvation is offered now in a whole new rollout to the entire world. And we get to be beneficiaries of that offer of salvation, but it's not a new religion. That wasn't what was intended. Eugene Peterson said in a beautiful little book called The Month of Sundays, for all his originality and all his uniqueness, Jesus did not begin a new religion. His life did not begin something new, but fulfilled something old. Most of the time, a rabbi was 30 years old when they could begin their ministry. That was considered old enough and experienced enough to be able to teach the scriptures and integrate them with the realities of life. And so we see in Jesus' life, he was 30 years old when he began his ministry. The Pharisees were people who were experts on what the scriptures said. Jesus was an expert on why they said it and what they meant. The Pharisees had so elevated the scriptures to become something that really became an idol, which seems odd, but it's true. The Bible can become an idol. 
And in the midst of that, Jesus said to the Pharisees, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, Jesus said. So the Pharisees were very well versed on what the scriptures said, but Jesus brought to life why they said it and what it meant. And so here we have it, right? Yesterday, big problem in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Pharisees are really upset about it. This Galilean, for goodness sakes, comes wandering into Jerusalem, stands up at the high day of our feast and says, he's the living water that everybody's thirsty for. The Roman leaders got a problem on their hands because Jesus is gonna create this big crowd. The Jewish leaders have a problem on their hands because this guy's gonna take their people in a direction they don't wanna go. And he's a Galilean, for goodness sake. And so at dawn, he appeared in the temple courts and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? You see that it's a trapping question. I mean, it is perfectly conceived by the Pharisees to trap him. One commentator says they must have spent most of the night planning this deal to roll out the next morning. Why is it the perfect formula to trap him? Because if Jesus says, I don't care about what the law of Moses says, then they reject him and say, see, you're a farce. You have nothing to do with the legitimacy of our people and our history. On the other hand, if Jesus says, yes, the law says to stoner, stoner, now he's in huge hot water with the Romans because the Romans had made it clear, you Jewish people cannot be carrying out religious executions on your own. We're the sheriff in town and you can't do that stuff. So Jesus is trapped with either answer. You would imagine that they were really pleased with themselves that they had come up with this perfect way to trap him. So either his answer is going to deny Moses and Israel's scriptures, or it's gonna deny the Roman authority. Let's not forget about the woman. They bring the woman in and she's just an object to get the results that they want here. The goal is to trap Jesus. She's a pawn in a power play, which makes you feel sick to your stomach at the way she's being treated, but nonetheless, this is a fact of the matter about the way the whole thing's rolling out. She's a pawn in a power play to trap Jesus. She is the object, ostensibly, of the problem, but the whole thing is putting Jesus on the hot seat. That's the whole reason this thing is rolling out the way it is. So to trap him, they use her. He's on the hot seat. She's just exhibit A as the evidence to roll this plan out. So you're either gonna deny Moses or you're going to deny the Roman authority. And to this, Jesus kneels on the ground and he starts writing with his finger. Don't miss it, I hope you don't miss it. The magnitude and the majesty of it is incredible. You may know it was in Deuteronomy chapter nine. Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and he says, the Lord gave me the two tablets on which God had written with his own finger all the words he had spoken to you from the heart of the fire when you were assembled at the mountain. In other words, the very 10 commandments, it doesn't get bigger than that in the teaching history of Israel, were written with the very finger of God. And so here they come to trap Jesus 
And the gospel writers are very emphatic that he wrote with his finger on the ground. It would have been inescapable that he was connecting himself, one, to the Ten Commandments, and two, to his Godness, that he is God, writing with his finger. In other words, you think the scriptures give you life. I'm telling you, they point to me. And here in this crashing, culminating place, he's saying, I am God. I'm writing with my finger on the ground. And I'm teaching you what all of that Old Testament history is all leading up to. So he writes on the ground. And then he says, let the one who is without stone, without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus' finger fulfilling what God's finger wrote. He now the object of their wrath. He's on the hot seat. You can almost see them like, yes, it's a perfect plan. And in a moment, the tables turn. In a moment, all the air gets sucked out of the temple courts. And he says, let, let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. Part of the genius of this statement, of course, he's pointing out that none of you are without sin. But if this thing had blown up, you know what the Roman authorities would have said? Who started this? Who was the first person to throw a stone? That's the person we're going after. So Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You know, sometimes when, well, this is true for me, I'm an internal processor. Somebody asks me a question and I need to say, give me a while to think about it and maybe I can try to give you a good answer. This moment is massive. And his response is immediate. The combination of his wisdom and his intelligence and his heart is just incredible to me. So the Romans would have said, who started it? So Jesus says, with brilliant insight, let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. Now, in the moment of silence that came after that, in that culture, everybody deferred to the elders. The, el the oldest people always got the most respect. And so in that moment, everybody would have turned and looked at whoever the oldest people are. Like, uh-oh, we're in a fix. What are the older people going to do? At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Because if the older ones are turning away, then the younger ones are like, well, if the older ones, our elders who we respect are turning away and they're saying they have no sin, then I guess we're going to do what they're going to do. So now Jesus is just with her, just her. One minute ago, she was in the crosshairs. Now he is. You see, now they are going to be so angry at him because he's pointed the law back to them. And this whole thing was cooked up to trap him with the perfect trap. And then with one magnificent moment of him writing on the ground and saying to them, let you who are without sin cast the first stone, the whole thing turns on them. They would have been livid with him. How dare you? You're a Galilean. 
and you come into Jerusalem in the temple courts and you start showing us up like this? So here's the woman. It's now Jesus with just her. One minute ago, she was on the cross here. She could have been stoned. She knew it. She could have been stoned. She was an object, an exhibit. The evidence they needed to get the result they wanted to trap Jesus. And now he is in their crosshairs and her shame has been transferred from her to him. You get the gospel in it, I hope. Your shame has been transferred from you to him. This is just one of so many pictures in the gospels where this kind of thing is happening. So now it's just him and her. When I read the Gospels, if I had some time with Jesus, I think I would have said, Jesus, are you just exhausted? Are you just so exhausted? People are always trying to trap him. There are crowds constantly pressing in on him. The disciples are not great. <laughs> he is always the bridge between antagonisms and broken places. And I'm not an engineer, but my understanding is that bridges hold a lot of weight. And he is always the bridge between antagonisms and broken places. Between the Romans and the Jews, between Galilee and Jerusalem, between our sin selves and our whole selves, between us and God. He is always the bridge bearing the weight of these antagonisms in broken places. And I just have to believe you've got to be so exhausted. So there was a phrase about rabbis and the phrase was their yoke. A rabbi's yoke was generally understood to be the basic themes and approach of their teaching. If you listen to a rabbi enough, you would begin to pick up on their yoke. This is the kind of thing this rabbi emphasizes. This is the approach this rabbi takes with the scriptures. The yoke was all of that. And you might think, that sounds really weird. It's not that weird. I mean, let's be honest. If you've listened to me for a while, you could more or less describe my yoke. What is David Dwight's general approach? What are his themes? What are the things that are important to him? What does he tend to bring out in the scriptures? You listen to Pete Boel, you could determine Pete's yoke. What are his themes? What's important to him? What does he bring out? You get, you get the idea. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What I'm going to teach you about this life that God is offering you is a life that brings refreshment to your souls instead of this constant beatdown. I asked myself, what is Jesus' yoke? How would you describe it? Okay, I know this is risky, but I'm going to give it a try. This is how I would describe Jesus' yoke. The glory, the holiness, and the love of God. The authority and the integratedness of Scripture. The essence of grace the power of compassion, the dignity of human beings, the breadth of sin and its implications. That's what I would say essentially is Jesus' yoke. And he taught this whenever he taught and he lived it and he demonstrated it. The power of this teacher to change lives. 
It's been said many times that teachers may have the power to change people's lives more than any other vocation. If you're a teacher, God bless you in this endeavor. Let me tell you real briefly a snapshot. Henrietta Mears was a woman who was a Christian educator at Hollywood Presbyterian Church in California back through the middle of the 1900s. Henrietta Mears had a remarkable influence. In my opinion, Henrietta Mears was the most significant ministry of the 1900s. And let me tell you why. Listen to the people who were influenced and inspired by Henrietta Mears. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, Billy Graham was substantially influenced by Henrietta Mears. J.B. Phillips, who, trans, who translated the scriptures. Dawson Trotman, who's the founder of the Navigators. Jim Rayburn, who's the founder of Young Life. Dale Bruner, one of my favorite commentators of all time. Charles Fuller, the president of Fuller Seminary. And countless pastors, business people, and actors and actresses in Hollywood. She started a quiet fellowship for Christian actors and actresses back in the mid-1900s. Now, start asking yourself, how many people had opportunity to come to life in Christ through Campus Crusade? Millions. How about Billy Graham? Many more millions. How about Dawson Trotman with Navigators, Jim Rayburn with Young Life, et cetera, et cetera. There is no doubt in my mind, Henrietta Mears is the most significant ministry of the 1900s. Her teaching influence and the capacity to offer people the gospel and to invite them home to life in a relationship with Jesus is breathtaking. So Jesus comes on the scene. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. Eugene Peterson again. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, he's previous to everything that Abraham was and is to them, to the Jewish leaders. Christ is the priority. Jesus is before any of that which they value so highly. Jesus is not a latecomer who is adding his two cents to everything that has already been said through the years by Abraham, Moses, David, Socrates, Confucius, Buddha. He is previous to all of it, preexistent. He is the first cause, the primary source. He is that which is eternally at the beginning. You see, you could say it this way. The Old Testament is the setup for the New Testament. The New Testament is the setup for the new order of things that will come when Jesus returns. Revelation 21, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. If I could say it really simply, the Old Testament paves the way for the bigger and better that we see the gospel in the New Testament. And the New Testament is paving the way for the bigger and better that is coming when Christ returns and brings the new order of things where there is no more pain. Each one leading to the fuller, larger rollout of God's redeeming power. Oh yeah, so now it's just him and her. Just the two of them standing there. This woman has been exposed and shamed by the way she was brought into the temple courts. She looks at Jesus. He says, who condemns you? None, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Here's the position she's in. He saved her. He saved her. He absolutely 100% saved her life. He protected her and he corrected her. 
Don't miss the combination of the two. He protected her and he corrected her. And she knows that this combination of things has saved her life. What he does with her is exquisite. He corrects her, but he doesn't condemn her. And this is something that in our culture today, there's almost no capacity to appreciate the nuance of this. In our culture today, if someone disagrees with you, they're your enemy and you wanna wipe them out and you call them all kinds of nasty names. Our culture has no capacity for the nuance to say, I am correcting you or I am disagreeing with you, but I love you. Our culture just doesn't seem to be able to handle those two. I disagree with you, but I love you. Jesus is essentially doing this. I have no condemnation for you. My heart is for you and with you, but I am telling you, stop this life of sin. Now I suspect what she knows is what many of us know, that doormat sex has left millions feeling walked upon. And so he will protect her and correct her so as, if you were here last week, to not leave her living in a pretty coffin. You see, I am sure that one of sin's most common and pernicious implications is that sin keeps us from trusting the love of God. When that love is a correcting love, when that love is an affirming love, it's all love. But one of sin's most pernicious rollouts is that it keeps us from trusting the love of God. At dawn, in the temple courts, our rabbi's magnificent teaching, saving a woman. At dawn, not too much later, our rabbi's magnificent teaching of an empty tomb saving the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, holy and beautiful, we come to you like this woman. We're all her, Lord. You saved us. You've protected us. Yes, you've corrected us with your love. You've taken our shame upon yourself and you've given us freedom, life, love, wholeness, restoration. Lord Jesus Christ, Rabbi, our master, our teacher, our champion, our resurrected savior, we love you. We're so grateful to you. And we pray in your name, amen.